This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of National Review's Capital Record. I'm very excited to be bringing back on the show today another individual who's been a kind of recurring guest. I'm not sure if this is our, our third or, or fourth time, but I do know that uh, Louis Gov has joined me several times and I've spoken in the past of how fond I am of his research. I uh, do not exaggerate to say that I read uh, Gov Cal every single morning. Um, I don't know that it's every day I'm getting something directly from Lewis himself, but between uh, Lewis and his father, Charles, and then some of their great colleagues at the firm, there's something um, in, in my daily inbox of reading that uh, benefits me all the time. But for those of you who've heard uh, Louie on the podcast before, you know he is quite uh, the economist and macro uh, commentator, if you will. And, you know, every now and then, if you're going to do a podcast about capital markets and my desire to see us defend these things philosophically, I guess you got to talk about capital markets. So that means we get to get into bonds and currencies and stocks and asset classes and all these types of things that guys like Louie and I do all day long. So that's what we're going to do here today. Louie, welcome back to Capital Record. Thank you so much. That is such a, such a very kind introduction. I do think it's the, the fourth time you, you've had me on. Uh, I've enjoyed every previous time. I'm sure we're going to have a great day today. But I'm uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I mean every one of them. So, so uh, we were talking a little bit uh, before we go on air, and we'll kind of take it up where, where we left off. Um, we're in interesting times. Um, I spend I spend so much time talking philosophy, theology, even you know political science on the podcast that every now and then I forget that some listeners may not have heard the latest. You know, hey, did you know the stock market was up a lot last year? And um, <laughs> the 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 issues about um, the top heaviness of the market. It feels like everything's going pretty well, but then you look under the hood and. Lo and behold, there uh, there's a handful of big tech companies kind of holding a lot of it together. I guess first things first, the end of 2023 did go a little ways at at democratizing market returns. You had you had a pretty broadening out of risk assets um, in November December when the market started to to accept the notion of the Fed tightening cycle being done. As we're now here into February 2024, what, what's your take? Uh, is NVIDIA going to be a $10 trillion company? Um, <laughs> so um, you're absolutely right that November, December did see a broadening out. Uh, but, you know, I think up until November 12th, if you look at the equal weighted S&P 500, it was actually down on the year up until November 12th. Um, right. So you, you really had, uh, to your point, uh, 
you know, coming into the end of the year, a broad-based rally, and all of a sudden, it wasn't just, uh, you know, the, the handful of stocks that, that, that we know well. Um, as, and it seemed to start that way in January, but then it reverted back pretty quickly to, to just being a handful of, of stocks. And I think if you look at, you know, at the past year, there's there's a number of things that that were highly highly unusual. First of all, last year, you know, in a typical year, you have roughly fifty percent of stocks that out outperform the market, roughly fifty percent that underperform the market, give or take five percent. But broadly, that's what happens. Last year, seventy three percent of stocks in the S and P five hundred underperformed the the market. Um, what's uh, what, what's more interesting is you only had one sector, namely tech where you had a majority of stocks that outperformed the S&P 500. Um, and then you had a, a number of sectors. My, my favorite one is staples. Uh, you know, if you came into 2023 thinking, yeah, you know, the Fed's been tightening, China's slowing down, the reopening of China's been a dud, uh, maybe there's going to be a global slowdown, maybe I should, you know, increase staples, maybe I should increase healthcare, maybe I should increase utilities, put a little more defensive bent to my portfolio, you were absolutely crushed last year. Um, last year, out of the 38 stocks that make up the staples, only one of them outperformed uh, the S&P 500. Um, better, better yet, only 12 of them out of the 38 delivered a positive return. Forget just outperforming, just making a, making money, only 12 out of 38. Um, now, can I, and, can I interrupt real quick to throw an anecdotal sure. point out? On a two-year basis, 2022, 2023, yep. what sector do you think performed better, consumer staples or technology? Um, I would say that by now it's got to, by with this January included, you're probably back to technology. Now, granted, you could say a lot of that, and I take your point, a lot of that was the reverse of, of 2022, where staples didn't do that badly, et cetera. But what was interesting to me in 2023 was this. To, to some extent, you could say, well, if you came into 23 with a defensive portfolio of utilities, healthcare, staples, whatever, you got smoked. But you could say, well, fair's fair. You know, you didn't have a recession. 2023 growth hummed along and growth continues to hum along as we saw with Friday's payrolls number. So you made the wrong bet in essence. Um, but if you came into 2023 thinking, you know what, all this recession talk, it's bogus, it's not going to work, US economy is going to hum along record high budget deficits, tight labor market, all the things that ended up happening. Um, so I'm going to buy industrials. I'm going to buy materials. I'm going to buy an energy. Guess what? You also got smoked. <laughs> but, also but got, the, yeah. thing, the thing is fascinating. And I guess it's sort of an accident that I'm talking my book here because I would actually end up just agreeing conceptually, but, but the different experience um, we had, which you're going to quickly realize how, See, I would have said we came in, you know, we were up about six and a half percent with our dividend portfolio in 22 when the S&P was down 19. And we came in last year and just dividend growth, which is what we do, always tends to be more defensive. And we would have an overweight relative to S&P and healthcare consumer staples. Utilities is always pretty underweight. They were the, Utilities was really the only sector down last year. Staples uh, and, and healthcare were flat or down one, but utilities was down about 7%. We only have one name there. But the thing that barbelled it the other way was financials, right? So even underweight tech and overweight staples, um, you have Blackstone up 81%, Apollo up 50%. 
there were certain cyclicals there in the financial side that when blended with the defensives like healthcare and, and staples, we still ended up being up 13 last year. Now it was well below market, but then you put the two-year record together, up six and a half and up 13 versus down 20 and up 22, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, well, congrats. Uh, that is that is indeed very, very solid. Um, really the solid bit, of course, was was 22, like being up six and a half percent in 22 yeah. was, was heroic, right? But it was all the more heroic since bonds were down a lot as well in 22. So being like, you know, most people came into 22 with your, if you came in with your typical 60, 40 portfolio, or, you know, a, a variant of, or 50, 50, et cetera, you completely got blown out of the water, all your risk parity portfolios and your um, balance funds, et cetera, they, like 22 was their worst year ever. So having a six and a half percent year in 22, again, was, I think, pretty heroic. It um, was pretty energy. And, I mean, if, if, yeah, yeah, if energy is your biggest sector and, and upstream and midstream. Now, by the way, energy was a positive contributor for us in 23, but it was just That's impressive as well. but only because of midstream. So uh, Exxon and Chevron were each down and those were our kind of upstream integrated exposures. Exxon was barely down and Chevron was down more significantly, but the midstream area um, being up, you know, for look, MLPs were up for 25% for the third year in a row. It's never happened. Yep. And so uh, that, that kind of helped a lot. For sure. MLPs have been terrific. The, um, but to your point, you know, if you came in, you know, something like Exxon and you thought, oh, the world's in on an unsecure, uh, uncertain place, there's a war in Ukraine, a war with Russia. And then on top of that, you start seeing all these headlines in the Middle East. You would have expected your Exxons of, or your Chevrons of this world to make money. They underperformed the market yeah. by 25, 30% last year. Um, these were like huge, huge drags on, on both relative and absolute performance yeah. um, uh, last year. But so anyway, to answer your question, where does this leave us today? You know, I think for me, the big quandary is, is, is pretty simple. You're now in a world in which U.S. equities account for 70% of global market cap. Yeah. Um, now, the U.S. is roughly 17.5-18% of global GDP right now. Um, and that has actually been shrinking a bit. If you go back a couple decades, the U.S. was roughly 19-20%. So, you know, the U.S. is uh, weight in global GDP. It's, it's holding up firmly doing much better than, say, Europe, Japan. But, you know, the, the reality is given demographic growth elsewhere, given lots of, you know. Um, so can we have a world, in essence, in which 70% of, uh, pro, you know, if you say, okay, 70% of stock market weight is in the U.S., you're basically assuming that over the long term, 70% of global profits are going to accumulate in the U.S. Um, with 4% of the population and 17% or 18% of the GDP, um, long-term does that hold up? Can we go from 70 to 80? Um, you know, you go back to 1999, 2000, the last time tech really had a big blow off top like we have today. Um, you know, back in 99, 2000, tech, you, you put tech and telecoms together, it was roughly 40% of the market. And it's the same thing again today, roughly 40% of the market, tech and telecom together. Um, you know, last time we had that, U.S. was roughly 50% of uh, global market cap. Then it went down to 40. And in the past 15 years, we've gone from 40 to 70. 
do we start hitting the law of large numbers here? To answer your question as to whether NVIDIA becomes a $10 trillion market cap, um, I, I think the law of large numbers just catches up with you. Well, maybe we're seeing it right now. Maybe you're, you're making a prophecy about the future that is already in the present because I want to point something out. Your data summary of what the top heaviness of 2023 was is spot on. And then, it, and then you, one can say, well, it's continued this way into the new year, right? But, you know, Corox is up 9.6% this year. Procter Gamble is up 8.5%. Staples have gotten a little, a little lift. Um, but then when you look at Magnificent 7, Tesla's down 28%. Apple's down 3%. But NVIDIA's up 38%. And Meta's up 30, and you and I are recording just a few days after Meta had the largest single-day increase to the market cap of a company in world history. Is it possible the Magnificent Seven is the next thing to get broken up? That, it, it, that the monolithic nature of it, much like Fang, I mean, does anyone really think of Netflix as the same as Apple anymore, you know? Um, is is the Magnificent Seven now about to die the death of uh, uh, diversification? Well, you know, I'm sure you saw the, the Magnificent Seven movie, whether the original Japanese version or the Western remake. But you know, they four four of them die in yeah. the movie. It's uh, it's just you left you left with three three characters at the end. It's a little bit like the Dirty Dozen. Um, so uh, to to answer your question. Um, I think right now the question every investor should ask as they look at the market, we seem to have broken out to new highs. Um, so is this a, a real breakout or is this a, f a fake breakout? Um, now, uh, if it's a real breakout, does it happen on a broadening of the market, in which case it's a healthy breakout and this thing can keep going? If staples start to participate, if financials start to participate, if healthcare starts to participate, this thing can really run. Um, if you think, no, no, this is a breakout and it's all going to keep being done on the back of the Magnificent Seven, to your point, there's only three of them that have broken out to new highs now amongst the Magnificent Sevens. It's Meta, it's Microsoft, and it's Tesla. Um, and it's uh, NVIDIA. NVIDIA yeah. Sorry. Um, and, and out of the Magnificent Seven, one of them is indeed feeling extremely heavy, and you pointed it out, and it's Tesla. Now, the story about Tesla, I think what's becoming increasingly visible um, is that somehow the the EV, the hype around electric vehicle is bursting. Uh, and I would say the EV bubble is bursting. And it's bursting for, for a number of reasons. But perhaps the number one reason is that policymakers all around the world are realizing that, in essence, China has now captured the entire electric vehicle supply chain. Um, therefore, if policymakers, the only reason EVs were growing in the first place. The main reason is it was being pushed by policymakers everywhere. But now if you're a policymaker, you're in essence saying, hey, if I'm going to push electric vehicles, I'm in essence going to turn my entire auto industry to the Chinese. Now, do I want to do this? Like, Now, which policymaker, whether in the US, in France, in the UK, et cetera, in their right mind would say, I'm going to have hand, just gift my car industry to the Chinese. It, it's, it's madness. Like you have to be like a, as dumb as a green in Germany or the Scottish Nationalist Party to, to go down this path. Um, like most people, like, so the whole policy angle around EV is, has already shifted. Um, 
It's not going to get pushed aggressively. And then on top of that, you can go into the fact with them repairing them cost a fortune, that they're still expensive for most for most people. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Uh, that uh, you know, these cars don't hold their value in the secondhand market, that uh, you know, that if you have a problem you made a point in a recent article on this subject or a, a recent research bulletin about battery replacement. Yep. No, no, look, you want to replace your batteries in your car. You know, you drive your car for five, six years, just like when you use your phone, you know, after a year or two, your phone battery starts to starts to, to fade away. Um, same is true for cars after five, six years. You want to replace the batteries. It's going to cost you as much as the new car. Um, so... You know, you, 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 which is why on the secondhand market, these things basically have very little value. Um, so as all these things, so that's your first problem. And then of course, the second problem is people think, okay, hold on, battery technology is evolving so quickly that I don't want to buy a car that's got three or four year old battery technology. Uh, you know, and I'll just wait a year or two and the battery, the range will be a bit better, et cetera. So you've got all these hurdles. Bottom line is the EV, the EV, bubble is imploding as we speak, I think. Um, so your Max 7 is really now a Max 6 at best. Uh, but then it does raise an important question, which is that when you look at this boom in tech that we're going through, a lot of it is in semiconductors. You know, Historically, when you look at global semiconductor sales um, relative to the global semiconductor market cap, you've always hovered between two and a half and five times. Like you look at the, the market cap of semiconductors relative to their sales, top of the cycle would be at five times, bottom of the five cycle would be at two and a half times. Today, we're at nine times, nine times. Now, I tend to believe that part of the reason we're at nine times is we all made the assumption that the entire auto industry is going to move to electric vehicles because your typical electric vehicle uses at least twice as many semiconductors as your normal car. Uh, and meanwhile, the auto industry is the biggest consumer of, of, of uh, semiconductors. So here's the question for me is, are we not seeing now, like in the implosion of the electric vehicle, how can that not have an impact on a, a semiconductor industry that is basically priced for perfection at this stage? And again, going back to your question of the, the 10 trillion uh, NVIDIA market cap, um, and semiconductor industry that is valued as it's never been valued before. Um, is this a little bit, you and I are the same age. You may remember, you know, in March 2000, the dot-coms went bust. Uh, but everybody was going around saying, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. What matters is you own Cisco, you own JDSU, you own Lucent, uh, you own Qualcomm, um, you own Nortel, because, you know, over the long term, we still need to roll out the internet and these guys still need to build the routers. And, and, and for six months after these guys went bust, these guys continued to make new highs. And then as it became clear that the demand for all their products was imploding, not only that, that it actually trade funded all of their clients, that they'd, like Lucent went bust on this, right? It was, it had trade funded, it had basically put up its balance sheet to, to make sales to all these guys. And when these guys went bust, a lot of bills went unpaid. Um, and Lucent went bust and old JDSU went down 95%, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, for me, this is the big question. You've got the whole EV space, I think, that is starting to implode. Is that the dot-com of the 2000s? And does it just go up in smokes in a vacuum and doesn't impact anybody? Or does it start impacting the semiconductors and, and the whole chain? 
This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. So I have a theory that I want to run by you because I respect your opinion on this um, more than mine. And, <laughs> and, and um, I think we tend to do something very similar in the way we view the present tense and future tense of capital markets is to think about the past tense and find historical parallels. But I kind of wonder what I'm missing as to why everything you just said could not be totally true but instead of applying to EV, applying to AI. And, and, the re- and the point I make is it, you could look at NVIDIA and Microsoft right now and say, what vulnerabilities do you see in AI? They're just still continuing to go through the roof. Um, but it does seem to me that you have a vulnerability of a lot of names that are not of the quality of NVIDIA, um, that you have a hype that is much different than the EV side. I mean, how many uh, Super Bowl commercials are we going to see about EV, right? But what we saw with with crypto a couple years ago, I mean, to me, I'm just a child of the 90s in the sense because I grew up investing in the 90s. If I see Super Bowl commercials, celebrity endorsements, and and hear bartenders, and it used to be taxi drivers, but now Uber drivers talking about something – I know I have found what the next thing is that's going to blow up. Also, and, the Harvard, and, where the Harvard MBA uh, graduating class goes to. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the Harvard MBA graduating class is also a, usually a pretty good indicator. Usually, usually it is. But I think I think that, that crypto of a couple of years ago, but .com um, to me has all this AI-like characteristic because it was rightly thought of as a concept that would change the world. And it but did. Wrong, but wrongly invested in. And so people will say, well, look at Amazon and Google. And I say, and look at pets.com and 998 other pets.coms. Um, the, the proportionality of successes to failures of 90s.com to today, it's not even close. The vast majority didn't just not thrive. They went under. And yet, obviously, you have exponential returns from the couple that succeeded. But I, I think AI seems to be this new thing that everyone is talking about without any real concept of monetization. Where with EV, they could be wrong, and there's all the structural challenges you've spoken to, plus Chinese competition, which I think is underappreciated. But I don't think it's the cultural um, bubble that AI seems to be. I, so I, I think that's fair, um, and I, I don't disagree at all with with anything you uh, you just said. I, the reason I focused on EV is this very last point you highlighted: the fact that you now have Chinese competition. So you have your obvious catalyst as to why, you know, why you have a problem right now. Um, you know, I think what what you're seeing in China is that for years the government basically told the banks lend to real estate. And so you had a big real estate bubble. And then they said, okay, 
we're worried about the real estate bubble, so no more lending to real estate. Uh, and you had the big real estate bust, which we're still dealing through with the hangover of that. And the government then told all the banks in China, look, go out and just lend to industry. Uh, and there's these industries that we particularly like. We particularly like electric vehicles, and we particularly like solar panels, and we particularly like nuclear power plants. And so, you know, if you can lend to these things, so much the better. Now, you know, if you're working for a bank in China, you have no incentive to to do anything except what the government tells you. So that's what you do. Um, and so today, you look at all the these EV producers in China. Now, every single region has their own EV producer because every region wanted, because the government told you this is what you should do. Every region wanted to have their own producer. So they have their own producer that gets municipal orders for the municipal car fleets or local buses or whatever else. Um, so everybody, you have massive overcapacity. And now the view is we're going to, you know, we're going to lend money to these guys to, to export their overcapacity. Uh, and, and that's, that's the world that we're in now. Um, where all these guys actually, you take the BYDs of this world, the, uh, the Lee autos, the, uh, you know, pick your name. They're all super cash rich. They're all like sitting on, on tops of big Calpas, but not because of monies they've made, but because of money they've been able to borrow from the banks. So now they're all slashing prices like crazy. They're all like, so it's your typical Chinese cycle where you overcapitalize an industry, they crush prices. Um, and now they're slashing prices and you're, you look at a Tesla, you're like, how can a Tesla compete with this? You know, that like, they're going to be undercut in every market in the world. The only way they can compete and, and you, you're seeing Elon Musk now asking for this is put up tariffs, like, you know, prevent, prevent these guys from coming in. Um, that's the only way you can, you can compete with them. Um, and, but, you know, with China being the biggest auto market in the world, you, they're obviously not going to tariff themselves. So, you know, so, so you've got the obvious catalyst here. The problem with like AI, you know, the bubble can continue. Like what's the obvious catalyst for it to implode, right? I, I take your point very well that you've got the ads, you've got the hype, you've got the magazine covers, you've got all the things that, you know, if you do your checklist, you have it all. And then you're looking for the catalyst as to, as, as to what breaks, breaks the back of it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. And, and I think for me, at being a kind of value bias guy who's still stuck in this world of cash flow, and, yeah. and, and sorry about that. Yeah, and discounted cash flow <laughs> and, and dividend growth and the belief in, in just basic economic first principles that are immutable. I think what breaks it is somewhat irrelevant. It is the disconnection in the hype from cash flows that yeah. all that matters then when someone starts talking about new rules, um, when you yeah, look at the new, the new tech stuff, that it, see, we can say NVIDIA came back and we can say Microsoft came back, but what no one's ever going to talk about again is Peloton. What no one's ever going to talk about again is about 80% of the holdings in, in Kathy's fund, right? I'm not picking on her. I'm just saying there's a lot of low quality tech that got taken to the graveyard in 2022 and it did not come back to life in 23. It's dead and buried. And that's a byproduct of the fact that they weren't ever going to be money making companies. And to the extent that some, this doesn't apply to AV, they're print, uh, excuse me, to NVIDIA, they're printing money, but it, it, they still have a 50 times multiple to deal with. You know, my, Microsoft is, uh, is at 35 times forward 
And, and the lion's share of that business is a utility. It's subscription on, on software licenses. So 35 times, it, they, they keep justifying it because they execute well with cloud and they've executed well with some minimal entry into AI. But I guess what I'm saying is the broad reality of the AI space, I don't know a catalyst. I only know that when I talk to advocates, they're not talking about cash flow or money making. And that usually means I'm either one year out or three years out from the year 2000. No, I, I agree with you. And usually the catalyst, to be honest, historically, well, at least it was the case in 2000, right? The, the catalyst ends up being a, a rising cost of capital. Like you don't mind yeah. paying 35 times forward earnings when the cost of capital is 2%, but if the capital is, cost of capital is six, it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm just as well in the U.S. Treasury. Um, the, um, having said that, you know, and, and you highlighted it, um, you know, what is interesting to me about, uh, I think, well, you circled around it, but um, if, if we go back a, f a few years, the, the, the argument for the Microsofts of this world, for the Apples, for the for the Alphabets, etc., was that these guys actually don't need our money. You know, they, they generate so much positive cash flow through their network effects. Um, they 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 don't need our capital. And you look at Microsoft, you look at Apple. They've spent the past five years buying back their shares every year, right? Every quarter. Um, and and Meta just announced more of the same. It's like, oh, we we make all this money, which is going to keep on shrinking the share count. Um, and uh, and and that's great. Now, I think here there's there's a bit of a narrative shift that we're witnessing in the tech world right now. And the narrative shift is this. If you listen to the like of Salesforce, of Alphabet, of um, uh, Snapchat this morning, like all these guys, what are they all saying? They're saying, well, look, we have to fire 10, 20, 25% of our workforce um, because we need the money to make more AI investments. I mean, that's, that's what they're all saying. Now, granted, this could be a fig leaf. It could just be they're saying, look, we're firing 10% of our workforce because we can and we overstaffed before and it's, you know, we're getting rid of 10% of our workforce because it's just a smart thing to do. It, that could, could be the case. But, you know, it used to be that the belief was all these guys were running business models where they in essence didn't need capital, where capital expenditures were very low, where you didn't need to spend money. Um, and now the message we're getting from a lot of these guys is actually we need to make big investments to stay relevant in AI. We need to. So as a friend of mine put it to me recently, when you listen to all the earnings releases, you don't see you, you hear a lot about AI, uh, but you see it on the capital spending part of of the uh, um, you know, of the accounts. You don't see it. Uh, in the profit-producing parts of the accounts, at least not yet. Um, so I guess the point is, if all of a sudden these guys move from a capital-light business model where you buy back shares every year to a capital-intensive business model, is it the, still a 35 earnings? Well, it can't be. And, and how can uh, NVIDIA grow revenues at the same percentage and hold margins? Yeah, I just, it just seems economically impossible. But but I don't. I, I guess we should switch gears to the to the, the questions about. Um, we're talking about interest rates. We're talking about cost of capital. 
you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I happen to think a lot of the stuff with mag seven is, is unsustainable, but you know, it's one thing, any of us in, with a certain amount of time, especially professionally managing money, you just learn that it's impossible to time certain things that you might believe to be un, unsustainable. And, and I don't have an opinion as to when some of these things reprice. I have an opinion that we are not in the middle of a new bull market in the S&P, that if you go back to uh, November, December of 21, to where we are now, there hasn't been money made. Um, there's really only been uh, one or two of those uh, big tech magnificent type companies that are even in the money since then. And you're, you're at a danger of a multi-year flat choppy market of one of the biggest companies in world history being being Apple. They they are, what are they so far this year? I think down 2%. They, they were up last year, but not at that same level, you know, that the NVIDIAs and all that were. But they're fine. They're printing money. They have great margins and all that. But the law of large numbers you speak to, um, we don't have any exception in history of one decade's leaders not being the next decade's leaders. And so I guess I'll tell you my theory, but I, would, I don't mind if you shoot it down. And I don't think you'll agree, but I think that um, what happened out of dot-com in 01 and 02, um, I do think consumer staples are going to do well this year. I do think some of these defensives. And I think that the market may be up five or down 10, but that the repricing of Magnificent 7 relative to the market could very well come from both rising tide of all the non-Magnificent 7 and some repricing within it. It could be both and, and yet that does not make it a bad environment for investing. That, that in fact, 2001, really uh, up until 9-11, uh, even 2000, you know, the, the NASDAQ gets crushed and the Dow's up, what, th th 13 14%? you may just have a, a rotation shift again, much like we saw in 22. So I have a slide that I've massively overused uh, in my, in my chart book, um, which highlights the top 10 market caps in the world uh, by decades. Um, you, you may remember that one. And so if you go back to 1980, uh, 1980, 1981, uh, six of the top 10 are all stocks. You know, this was, in the wake of Club of Rome, there won't be enough for everybody, peak oil, all that stuff. Um, you go to 1990, eight of the top 10 companies in the world are Japanese. Uh, you go to 2000s, um, it's all the tech stocks, you know, the, the Microsofts, the uh, um, Cisco's, etc. cetera. Um, you go to 2010 and it's all basically China-related stuff. A lot of oil stocks in there, BHP, Rio Tinto, like all these guys that participate in the Chinese boom. And there's some Chinese names as well, like PetroChina and ICBC. Um, and so, I, you know, in 2021, when I published this, you know, 10 out of 10 were tech stocks and 8 out of 10 were American tech stocks. And the 10th was... Uh, was um, Tencent in China, and the ninth was TSMC in in, in uh, Taiwan. Uh, the and you know in 2022 I felt pretty smug. I, mean, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> we've had the rotation for the same reasons. Um, and then last year I feel like a complete dofus because uh, a lot of a lot of these tech names have not only 
rebounded strongly, but some, as you pointed out, have, have taken out new names. Now, I want to illustrate, highlight a couple things. First, it seems that we go U.S., non-U.S., U.S., non-U.S., U.S., non-U.S. It also seems that we go growth value, growth value. Um, so decade, are you saying decade by decade, decade by decade? Yeah. So yeah. if you wanted to be a lazy money manager, you would buy 50% us growth, 50% international value. And then you'd rebalance once every 10 years and you'd go to the beach and you'd probably outperform the rest of us monkeys trying to fine tune <laughs> everything on a, on a, on a constant basis. So, that's number one. But the other thing I'd highlight is that the rotation usually happens with a bust. Now, the bust may take more or less long, but you know you had a huge oil bust in the early 80s. You had a huge Japanese bust in the 90s. You obviously had the NASDAQ bust in the 2000s, uh, and we're still in the middle of the China bust. Um, so you know, can we have this rotation without a bust in... Um, in, in the tech. Now, granted, you could say the China bust actually was drawn out over a long period. Like we had a, a big bubble, then we had a retest of the bubble in 2015, and then it's like the air has been coming out of it ever since then. Um, and so perhaps you could say the same thing could happen for the US. It just like gets gets drawn out. It's not like you never have a big bust. It's just like it, it gets drawn out. And, and that, of course, I would say is... Uh, probably the best scenario, right? It'd be no, not much pain, or at least if you just <laughs> spread out the pain. Um, and yes, to your point, it allows other things to, uh, to start doing well. Now, you know, as I look at the coming years and I think, okay, where is growth in the world going to come from? Really, there's two possibilities. Either you know, the hype is for real and all the growth in the world is going to come from AI and, you know, AI is going to be so great that NVIDIA, Microsoft, et cetera, will get to grow into the valuations they have today. So that's option one. Uh, or option two, the growth in the world will come from the birth, in essence, of, of consumers all across emerging markets. And I often illustrate that you draw a line that goes from Istanbul to Jakarta, You've got 3.6 billion people there, population growth of one, not including China, 1% 1 uh, 1 population growth, 5% income growth. And yes, to your point, these are people that are going to be starting to buy Nestle or McDonald's, wh whatever else, um, Procter & Gamble toothpaste, um, and, you know, Gillette razor blades or whatever. Um, so... Yes, it could very well be staples. You know, you look at a Stockholds or uh, Clorox or, you know, like Nestle and L'Oreal, which I know better than, than uh, the Clorox that you mentioned. But both of these stocks now have more than half of their, or Unilever, all of these companies have more than half of their sales in emerging markets. Um, now, I look at these companies in 10 years' time, they'll have three quarters of their sales in emerging markets. Um, so it's simply the law of large numbers. Um, they'll be selling into India, into Indonesia, across the Middle East, um, into Africa. You know, you look at Africa, this is my favorite stat. Um, in 1950, there were 50% more Europeans than Africans. 50% more. You go to 2050, which is really tomorrow, Europeans will be 15% of the number of Africans. And that includes the number of Africans will, will have moved to Europe. So we'll have gone from 50% more to being basically 
one seventh of of what there is Africa. So that's and yes, to your to your point, I think a lot of these guys will be consuming staples. Uh, but but that's a that's a good thing, for sure. For sure, I, I, I can, like, that's where the growth. That's where the growth will come from. So when you think of okay, where is the growth going to come from in the coming years? It's either going to come from consumption in emerging markets, option one, or option two. It's going to be AI. I, I'm firmly in the camp that is going to come from consumption in emerging markets. What about a third option of um, capex renaissance, reshoring in the United States, a, a certain. Um, reindustrialization out of a marginal deglobalization that enhances productivity that overlaps on the Venn diagram with AI. But do you buy the idea? I think you know my friend Renee Ananow. He's spoken with us at some of these Malden conferences. Yep. Renee is not only a very dear friend, but someone I consider a brilliant analyst. But he's really big on this idea that. Um, 15 years of getting no productivity boost and getting no substantial real GDP expansion that we are due for some as a byproduct of, of some of the onshoring, nearshoring, reshoring activity, uh, recognizing there's a cost to it on the front end, but there's a payoff on the back end. Do you see any hope for an industrial uh, option in your catalyst to growth? I, uh, not in the U.S., uh, and I, I don't want to sound harsh. You live in the U.S. I don't, uh, yeah. but I do travel in the U.S. You know, my wife's American, my kids are American, my son's good, goes to college in the U.S. Um, it doesn't feel to me as if you're getting the kind of productivity gains that that that, that you talk about. I think travel in the U.S. is a misery whenever you have to take a plane, whenever you, uh, um, you know, you you have to drive through cities and the traffic and. Um, you know, and perhaps I spent too much time on the West Coast, uh, but it doesn't seem to me that most big cities in the U.S. and let's face it, more and more of the population lives in urban settings. Uh, it feels to me like most big cities in the U.S. that I travel to, whether New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles, it feels to me like they keep getting worse. They don't get better, uh, and this every single year. Um, so, so no, I, I I actually don't buy it at all, and I'll go one step further. Um, um, if I look um, at um, uh, you know the U.S. workforce, the whole I love the talk of oh we're going to reindustrialize, we're going to do with what workforce? The U.S. labor market is already so tight, and we just saw this again with with the payroll numbers. Like you know we you know when Trump came in, he said oh you know I'm going to force people to come back, and Foxconn said we're going to open. A factory for 50,000 workers in Indiana, et cetera. They didn't do it. They couldn't find the workers. Um, you know, the reality is in the US, you have spent the past 25 years telling every kid if you don't get a college diploma in gender studies, then you have failed your life and you are going to be uh, a janitor at your high school at best. Um, and you have spent 25 years undercutting any kind of blue collar work, any kind of manual labor. And the reality is you've now lost the generation that needs to, knows how to do this. When you look at factories around the world, what you need is 40-year-olds who train 20-year-olds. But if you don't have the 40-year-olds, you can't train the 20-year-olds. Um, and you have lost that class of industrial workers in the U.S. So to think that with a magic wand, you can just bring it back, um, when every kid you meet who's 20 years old in the U.S., the last thing they want to do is handle a blowtorch. 
they want to work in an office with air conditioned where they can go down and get a mocha frappuccino. Um, and you know, like, and nobody's thinking of showing up at work with a hard hat and, uh, and now granted you could say, well, that's going to change because the wages for all these workers is now much better than white collar workers. Um, but I, uh, that's going to take 10 years. Meanwhile, what is happening in the rest of the world? In the rest of the world, you have China coming in and telling the likes of India, Indonesia, Vietnam, even Mexico, hey, we'll sell you the machine tools you need and we'll sell them to you in your currency. And then you have Russia coming in and saying, hey, we'll sell you the commodities you need and we'll sell them to you in your own currency. Mm -hmm. So now the, the hurdles for industrialization, if you're a Vietnam, if you're Indonesia, have just been removed. You can get the machine tools, you can get the commodities, and off you go. And so these countries are now industrializing on the cheap and on credit. Um, so you now have, not only if you're an American industry to think I'm going to compete with China, but you're actually going to have to compete with Mexico, with Vietnam, with Indonesia, all of which now have actually better machine tools than we have. Um, you look at Indonesia today, Indonesia opened a high-speed rail link across Java. There's now high-speed rail going from China into Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. I mean, I never thought, if you told me 10 years ago, Indonesia will have a high-speed rail before the U.S., I would have laughed in your face. Mm -hmm. uh, but yet, here we are. How, how many billions of dollars has California now spent on their supposedly so-called uh, uh, high-speed rail? I think you're, you're up to like 15 or $20 billion with still not a piece of rail laid down. Uh, in the meantime, high-speed rail is happening all over the world. So the idea that the U.S. is going to industrialize, to me, seems very fanciful. And so you're you're appealing to certain kind of economic impediments that I think I think are very valid. I, I would kind of agree with a lot of your reasoning, but maybe either supplement the approach or or take a slightly different approach, which is more cultural. Um, factory construction is up seventy seven percent. I'm not convinced they're going to get the workers to fill the factories. And yet I'm not sure that is so much wage related or foreign competition related. Um, I, I do believe that America is suffering from a significant challenge with um, the incentives, uh, the motivation, the, the uh, well, ability to pass a drug test for one thing. Um, of, of, of a lion's share of that population, that non-college educated population. But I, I don't want to say it can't get better. I kind of do this podcast often talking about it and think about public policy and think about elements within civil society that can improve that very component. One of the things I think goes a long way to improve it is to quit enabling it and quit uh, talking as if we think it's okay for 30-year-old men to, to live at home and, and not work and all these types of things, subject of a, a new book I have coming out tomorrow, as a matter of fact, by the time people are listening to this. Congrats. Well, thank Congrats. you. But What's it called? It's called Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. And yeah, I do think that, um, that there are big impediments to the U.S. getting that productivity, um, and yet... I do wonder if there's a few things changing right now. I, 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 I viewed um, the deglobalization talk pre-COVID as a sort of populist temper tantrum. It was very clear to me that even if Trump helped light the, the candle, there wasn't the intellectual coherence there to turn it into a real 
uh, sustainable movement. The, Surely not. The, the negotiations around the China trade thing ultimately proved to be exactly what he said, threaten to do big tariffs, but don't really actually do them and then see what kind of policy concessions you get. And some, some of the conversation uh, it provoked could be healthy. Some of it could, could have resulted in certain good things. I think for the most part, not really, but there's a lot of disagreement on the right about that. There's no question that one of the legacies of that Trumpian moment is he successfully flipped the Republican Party's commitment to free trade. He just didn't flip mine. But, <laughs> but what, what happened is not anything Trump could have done was COVID. And people couldn't get Clorox wipes. Uh, and then more significantly than Clorox wipes, they couldn't get semiconductors. And that led to a significant price inflation uh, up and down different components of the supply chain, most notably in automobiles and other really significant factors. They couldn't get appliances for houses. And so then you get this sort of distorted conversation that sometimes talked about human rights, sometimes talked about Trump bringing back jobs to Ohio, and other times talked about national security. And so again, it was a kind of intellectually incoherent conversation but it crystallized national consensus against a heavy dependency on the Chinese contribution to the U.S. supply chain. And now there has been a big movement. Now, not all to Ohio, but Vietnam, Mexico, Canada, and yes, some Arizona, some Ohio. Um, marginally, I just wonder what will come it's of it. It's been mostly Mexico. What? To be honest, it's been mostly Mexico. Yeah. Now, I think what really freaked out people, if you go back to those COVID years, was all of a sudden people realized how dependent they were on China for many things. But but really, what really freaked out everyone is how dependent they were for China, for for actually all the components that you make drugs with. And I, I, and I mean, like, you know, not fentanyl, just, you know, you're the medicine. Um, and how... All of a sudden, we realized, uh, oh, you know, darn, if China stops shipping us the components, because it's one thing if you can't get a toaster oven or if you can't get even, you know, a car, a new car, that, that's one problem. But not getting access to medicine, that's, you know, that's a, much more problematic. Now, um, I do think since then, you know, you look at the amount of capital investment that has gone on in Mexico since then. Uh, and it's absolutely gargantuan. Now, what's interesting is a lot of this capital investment in Mexico is actually being done by the Chinese themselves. The, the, the Chinese realizing we can't sell to the U.S. from China anymore, so we have to sell, you know, they'll be more comfortable if we sell from Mexico. Um, and, and you look at Mexican exports to the U.S., and they're just, go, they're just going absolutely parabolic. Um, so the, the big winner out of all of this, I don't think has been Ohio, or Arizona, it, it's it's been Mexico. Uh, partly because in New Mexico you do have the industrial workers. Partly because in Mexico you do have, for demographic reasons, you you, you do have the excess workforce, um, and you'll have it for a while because the the female participation rate of labor in Mexico still isn't as high as it could be. Um, so you you have this huge reservoir of of workers there that indeed the U.S. can tap into. So all this I think is is a, is a very strong reason to be extremely, extremely bullish Mexico. Uh, Mexico is going through a bull market of its own that I think will continue for years. Um, and and by the way, another thing that happened because of COVID, we all know, is low 
you know, wages for, for low-end workers, the guys who clean your hotel rooms, your gardeners, et cetera, went up a lot. And guess what? Uh, a lot of these people do tend to be Mexican as well. So now you look at rem remittances from the U.S. into Mexico. It used to be $2 billion a month. It's now $5.5 a month. It was $2 billion pre-COVID. Now it's 5 and a half Because as wages have gone up at the low end in the U.S., you know, Mexican workers working in the U.S. also make more money. So everything is conspiring to, to, to create a huge boom, huge boom in Mexico. And, and so in other words, back to your point, there could be some of this productivity boom. There are some positive things globally that come out of the shifting of the guard in, in nearshoring and, and reshoring, but, or excuse me, offshoring uh, out of China. It's just that U.S. does not end up being the biggest beneficiary uh, other countries, including Mexico, do. Exactly. And then I come back to what I was saying earlier. Remember our starting point. The U.S. is 18% of global GDP, 17.8% of global GDP, 70% of global market cap. Where, where does that go going forward? Do you think when in five years' time, the U.S. is 23 24% of global GDP? Because if it's not, how do you stay at 70% of, of global market cap? Um, so isn't it more likely that the next booms are going to be in Mexico, in Brazil, in Indonesia, in India? By the way, all places, all these markets that are currently where you're seeing their equity markets outperform U.S. equity markets, um, and you're seeing their bond markets massively outperform U.S. bond markets. So the markets are actually telling you, look, the next big bull market is actually not the U.S. It's in all these EMX China countries. And so uh, does this make you bullish on buying in the EM or does it make you bullish on buying U.S. Yep. companies that sell to EM? Right, there's, look, there's always many ways to skin a cat. When you look at the China boom of the 2000s, there were lots of ways to play that. You could play it, of course, through the commodity markets. You could play it by buying LVMH and the luxury goods guys. It's, you could play it by buying Volkswagen, who was selling lots of cars. And of course, yeah, you could, you know, the, the simplest way to play it was buying Chinese real estate. When you look at the boom that's unfolding in India, in Indonesia, in Mexico, um, you can play it by buying local companies. Sometimes you can buy Play it by buying the local companies, the, the foreign multinationals that operate there. You know, Mexico is a great example. Uh, you, you know, if you're like, oh, I don't trust Mexican management, I'm buy Walmart Mexico. It's listed. You know, you buy Walmart in Mexico. If I'm right about the rising disposable income, the remittances, the jobs creation, etc., how is Walmart Mexico not going to boom? Um, um, if I'm right about interest rates going to keep going down, how is that not going to go? Or Unilever India. Uh, is another example, or, you know, Cadsbury, Nigeria, like all of these, if you don't feel comfortable buying the local names, you can very often buy indeed the multinationals that focus into that market. Can you get a scenario? And one could argue we've gotten some of this the last decade. We did not get it the first decade in that golden age of EM brick investing. But can you get 10% annual earnings growth with 10% annual currency give back? In, in other words, if the emerging market return for a U.S.-based investor is plus or minus the stock return of the emerging market country, plus or minus the currency impact equals a net total return, um, is it possible one hand giveth and the other hand taketh away? It seems to me that's been the story of our last 20 years, that we had a really hell of a great decade of EM investing as dollar declined, and then we've had... Uh, second decade where earnings growth was higher than it was the prior decade, 
but returns materially lower because of currency? So I think that's a super important question. Um, and, and look, the reality again is if if you're a U.S. dollar, if you're a big U.S. dollar bull, EM historically haven't been a great place to deploy capital. EMs always tend to struggle when uh, when emerging when the U.S. dollar does well. Um, I personally, I'm a U.S. dollar bearer, and I think you and I have discussed this in the past. Um, I look at the evolution of U.S. government debt. Um, I, to me, you know, you can't keep adding two trillion to your debt pile year in year out. Um, without at some point forcing the central bank's hand into monetizing this debt. Um, the, the, the debt levels are becoming too big. Um, and, and monetizing the when, debt you take for granted will have a, a negative effect on the currency. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It, you know, it, it, it just will. Um, when the BOJ did this, the yen went from 100 to 150. When the ECB did this, the euro went from 150 to 105. Uh, it's no, wait, wait, um, now, wait now, a second. Now that's interesting. I've never heard someone make that analogy. Do you believe what the BOJ did and what the ECB did are the same? Um, yeah, they went out and they bought a bunch of government debt and put it on their balance sheet. Basically, they bought out a bunch of worthless. So, that in that sense, you would be arguing that quantitative easing, the mere act of bond buying, of course, it not the extinguishment of the liability, but the actual acquisition of the asset is monetizing the absolutely. Debt. I would argue that. Then why didn't it happen to the U.S.? Because Japan was doing Japan and Europe were doing it in bigger in bigger numbers. It's it's it's, it's, it's well, well, Japan, Europe wasn't doing it in bigger it's, numbers. That's it's, uh, Japan was definitely doing it in bigger numbers. Japan yeah. was, but, but not the, Europe. Uh, but Europe, arguably, you could say, was doing it with crappier paper. You know, they were loading up on Greek, on Italian. That it'd be equivalent uh, if the U.S. Federal Reserve now started to put. A bunch of California or Illinois paper on its uh, on its on its balance sheet, uh, which they may still do. Uh, when you look at the evolution of pension liabilities, uh, etc., in in the U.S. Now, to answer your question, and I think you and I, although I guess they still can't legally, right? No, um, no, right now they can't. But but neither could the ECB. <laughs> ECB couldn't do this legally. They just said, "Oh, it's a crisis. We changed the rules." And who's going to stand? Who's going to hold them to account? In Europe, nobody held them to yeah. account. Um, I, you should you should add that Greek debt is now trading an investment. No, grade, it is. But, it uh, is. It, it turned out. Yeah. It turned out okay in the end. But uh, now, staying back um, um, on uh, on, I think this is a debate we've your discussion you and I have had uh, over. Yeah. Uh, you look at over this period of QE, et cetera. And especially let's start basically when the balance sheet really blows out of proportion in the U S which really starts with the, the COVID crisis. You look at since then, you look at the outperformance of Chinese bonds, Indian bonds, Indonesian bonds, Brazilian bonds, Mexican bonds against U S treasuries in U S dollar terms. We're not talking about six, seven, eight percent of outperformance. We're talking 25, 35, 50%. But you said your premise, though, on it was that we really started doing it out of the COVID moment. And I think, as a matter of fact, that isn't true. That we we essentially, right now, we've gotten $1.2 trillion off the balance sheet. So it got up to nine. It's now seven, eight. So you could split the baby in half of the amount of quantitative easing that was done QE1 through three and the amount that was done in the COVID period. And so you did have a full $4 trillion added to the balance sheet 
which you're referring to as debt monetization, right? Mm -hmm. We were at $600 billion on the Fed's balance sheet uh, the day Lehman went under. And, and by the time QE3 wrapped up in 2014, we were at $4.5 And, and nobody could argue that the dollar was devalued in that time. And Europe didn't even, Draghi didn't even start his bazooka until the tail end of that period. So I, I argue, I don't really think we disagree that much, though. It's just the semantics of it are different. Um, I fear real debt monetization, which I don't think is the same as buying the bonds. The, the Treasury still has to pay the Fed back. I, I think debt monetization is if the Fed, the central bank forgives the debt. Um, if, they if they basically make currency of the liability, um, that to me becomes an accelerated okay, let me, quantitative let me, easing. Let me turn around your question. Uh, okay. Given the expansion, both in budget deficit, given today's difference in real rates, you know, you're earning six and a half percent real in Brazil. You're earning five percent real in Mexico. Um, given the difference in the growth of the balance sheets between the Fed and pick any, you know, major emerging market central bank balance sheets, given the difference in real rates, the difference in growth of the, the balance sheets, and the, the difference in budget deficits, because the U.S. is completely out of whack with, against most people in the world. Um, why should you be bullish on the U.S. dollar today against, say, a Mexican peso or a Brazilian riai or an Indonesian rupiah or a Chinese renminbi for that matter? So um, I'll, I want to answer, but I'm only sort of answering because it's really a little bit of devil's advocate because I don't know that I really disagree. But the best are unless you're one of these like the dollars in a reserve, reserve lose its status, reserve status. No, we're not talking about that. We're just talking just, just pure because forex. You, you, you're just talking about forex. You've had plenty of times where the U.S. dollar goes down twenty percent. That's right. That's right. Without without losing reserve status or anything, it's just that's right. Just what um, I it's think that the biggest uh, the biggest argument for some sustenance of dollar continues to be the ugly house in the bad neighborhood, um, the the best house in a bad neighborhood thesis, which is the the very nature that most people don't get. You get it as well as anyone I know. I understand it, and I think a lot of the macroeconomic people in our Rolodex understand it. But I firmly believe that most people that will listen to Fox News on the right or NPR on the left do not understand that currency is inherently relative. You can't make an absolute statement about a currency because it has to be valued when you're talking about Forex in relation to another. And so my answer is simply that for all of the things we can say that they are doing to bastardize the dollar, I think other countries are doing it worse with less rule of law, with less economic productivity, and with less sort of DNA. Now, we're doing our very best to catch up, to make our house as ugly as everybody else's. I'm not trying to say anything bullish about our fiscal policy, our monetary policy, and for that matter, even our rule of law. But I, yeah, I don't believe that the competing currencies represent a viable alternative to the dollar in any longer term period. So I, I think on this, I think this is the, the crux of where we disagree, is first, I don't think other countries are doing it worse. I think the US right now is seeing the biggest expansion in its budget deficit of any other country. 
Um, and, and, and this by as a percentage shot, of GDP, as a percentage of GDP and this by a long shot, I'll send you some charts. I mean, it's, 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 it's mind numbing. You know, I always get teased because I'm French about like, you know, coming from a socialist country, et cetera. But the, the expansion of U.S. debt is now even faster in, in the U.S. than it is in, in my own country of France. And God knows we're, we're not, you know, leading I'm winning any races on that on that front. Um, yeah. I, I also tend to think that um, you know markets are o- always made at the margin. So if you go from being really really stupid to just plain stupid, yeah. um, that's a huge improvement, and things get re-rated. If you go from being very smart to just not so smart, which I would argue is what the U.S. has been doing. Uh, you get derated. You don't get re-rated, um, and um, and that's my big fear for the U.S. Um, and indeed, when you look at things like the rule of law, when you think of all the things that used to make the U.S. great—the respect for the freedom of speech, the uh, uh, you know all the things that you've seen undermined uh, in the past in the past few years—I think. You know, it's brutal. It's brutal. You're, you're talking to the right guy to agree with you. And and, and by the but way, you'll forgive me if I don't view Mexico, China, or for that matter, France as um, a beacon of the alternative here. But again, if you go from plain, st- from just outrageously stupid to just plain marginal stupid, movement, it's uh, you, 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 you improve a lot. Um, yeah. All right. Now. The uh, on on the look the question of the U.S. dollar is 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 one of the more important ones. Um, now I would add one more thing since we talked about the past decade. Uh, you know what supported the U.S. dollar the past decade? You had two massive events. One of them we've already covered was the the big tech boom, etc., and and whether that continues or not. Um, but the other event that people forget, and for me that was the single most important macro development of the past ten years. It was the shale revolution. The U.S. went from producing five and a half million barrels a day to producing 13 million barrels a day. The U.S. added a Saudi Arabia in less than a decade. Nobody had ever done that. Nobody had ever done that. And the U.S. basically moved from importing 200 to $250 billion worth of energy products every year to being a net exporter. So you had a huge improvement in the U.S., energy trade balance, which, you know, this, and all of a sudden, the U.S. had a comparative advantage that it, nobody else had. It had gas at $2.50. Uh, and nobody else had that. You, you Price of natural gas in Europe was 12 and price of natural gas in Japan was 15 and in China, it was also 12. Um, and so, this was a comparative advantage. Now, again, like, this came out of nowhere, was a huge tailwind for the dollar for 10 years, um, and my contention would be that the U.S. has squandered the opportunity that was given to them by by this. With the cheap gas, the U.S. should have reindustrialized, um, and uh, it should have embraced the gift of the Permian because it basically almost all came from the Permian and the Bakken. But it should have embraced those gifts and uh, and harnessed all the productivity gains that came from it. Uh, and instead, I think a lot of it was pissed away by. You know, how do I best, how do I best optimize puppy videos on the internet? Yeah. Well, and so I think that we're in total agreement about the um, uh, unforgivable moment in which American culture finds itself. The, the, the thing I struggle with is the testimony history um, and applying a timeline to it that I find much of the degradation of the quality of American cultural life very disturbing. 
It's a big subject on this podcast, as listeners know, and yet attaching it to a um, investment outcome around the dollar or the bond market or our fiscal stability or whatnot has been difficult. Part of me thinks that perhaps our gratitude needs to be higher for our Puritan forefathers and the rich legacy that they left us. Uh, part of me thinks we underestimate to our own peril that which is good in, in the economic aspect of American life. But I don't take lightly anything you're saying. I fully agree. And, we, and we're very big EM investors in the growth side of things outside of our dividend growth portfolio. Um, I just have recognized more and more the short-term reality of how much a headwind is there when you're getting really amazing revenue growth, earnings growth, margin expansion in domestic opportunities of emerging markets, and you're still not getting returns. This so dollar, this, it's currency over and over yeah, again. It's, it's currency, but so I'll, I'll come back to this. It, it, and it was, was the crux of the discussion we had today. If you think the story for the next five years, 10 years, it will remain AI, it will remain Microsoft, it will remain NVIDIA, and that that story will continue to drain capital from everywhere around the world, whether the Middle East, whether Asia, whether Latin America. If that remains the, the lighting, the guiding light of the bull market, then the dollar stays strong. And then your Nestle's and your L'Oreal's of this world or your LVMH, they might do fine. They'll do fine, but they won't be, that won't be the exciting story. If like me, you believe, nope, we're already seeing the shift. The outperformance of the EM bond markets are telling you the shift is already there. The outperformance of markets like like Brazil, like Mexico, like India, like Indonesia, Turkey. Turkey's been outperforming the past few years when, you know, that's like the ultimate basket case of emerging markets. Um, if you think that's the story, the emerging market consumer, then there is no way the U.S. dollar stays strong. As more and more people realize, actually, that's the real story, as more capital gets deployed there, emerging markets will go through a triple merit scenario, a triple merit scenario being falling real interest rates, rising exchange rates. And it is that combination that allows for a massive re-rating of all asset prices, be it real estate, corporate debt, or, uh, or equities. Uh, it is my contention that this has already started in Brazil, in Mexico, in India, in Indonesia, and most people are, are missing it. Um, and they will realize it's happening once the US dollar rolls over in earnest, uh, that will then then the, the, the money flows will start big time. And so what's in point, earnest? Yeah, well, in earnest, like big time. I know, like, but what, uh, what's big time? 10, 20, 25%? Per yeah. year? Yeah. No, I mean, just even from A to Z without a timeline. How much does the uh, dollar have to roll over? All these, all these, oh, oh, for the dollar to roll over. Sorry, I didn't get uh, your, yeah. your question. Um, you said once the dollar yeah, rolls think, over in earnest. I think 15. I think 15. So if the dollar, uh, if the DXY is down 15%, so here's the here's the challenge. Here's the to your point. Here's the genuine challenge. Most people look at the dollar through the DXY. The DXY is two thirds euro, one third Japanese yen. Yep. Is is that is that the real matrix? When you, is that the real benchmark? When you're thinking about Mexico, Brazil, Indonesia, China, India, the Middle East, I'm not sure that it is. So um, to a bricks basket, you like better to a bricks basket. But and and again, it it is happening. Look at. What's the best performing currency for the past three years? It's the Mexican peso. Mm -hmm. Like no, nobody talks about it. But you're asking me, oh, you know, what if I buy Walmart Mexico? Do I make 10% on the earnings but lose 10% on, on the currency? Actually, you're not. You're making 10% on the earnings and you're making an extra 5% on the currency. Yeah. 
Well, that that has and, been that has been the case here um, in, in a more recent period of time. It has not been the case over a decade. But I hear you. The past, the past three four years, this is what's happening. Again, I think as as your tech boom starts running out of steam for the very reasons you highlighted, cash flow valuations, etc. Plus. Your, the Permian boom also starts running out of steam because of lack of capex, because of regulatory pressures, because we've told we've told every twenty year old that if they go work in the um, uh, in the oil industry, they're stamping a ticket uh, for hell, uh, and they're just evil, evil people. Uh, for all these reasons, um, as the you know the the U.S. oil industry starts, no pun intended, running out of gas, um, then you know it's. The Brazils, the Colombias, the Mexicos, the Indonesias, this is where you'll want to be. Well, Louis, it is always an absolutely fascinating conversation. There's so much I learned from it. I'm positive there's so much listeners learn. There's certain elements that we may uh, feel a little differently, but I think a lot more overlap, a lot more common ground, and also a lot of things that some of the the premises I think one could agree on, and then maybe the conclusions are, are a little tougher to get to. If it was um, always a matter in our world of identifying premises and then knowing how the conclusions followed, I think investing client capital would be a lot easier. Um, you, al- <laughs> you also, I should point out, you did say one thing that caught me a moment ago about what that next big thing or hot thing will be. It's entirely possible that that's not the pursuit of all investment managers. Um, in other words, the challenge may be not to find the hottest thing but within a certain risk profile to find the best thing, most stable, consistent. And I, I wonder if things like consumer staples or, or fee-based asset managers or fee-based midstream operators that are not relying on a particular price of a commodity like oil and gas, I wonder if some of those things could very well prove to be both not the hottest dot and a really, really solid uh, investment performer in the decade ahead. That, that would probably be closer to my thesis of the case. Um, I think that we will leave it there. We've covered a, a million things. The problem is we left it with a, a million more to cover. So we got to have you back again. Whenever you want. It's always, a, I've always enjoyed our catch-ups. Thanks a bunch for having me. Likewise. Thanks so much, Lloyd. today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.